0: It's my great joy to invite you this morning to open your copy of God's perfect and precious Word to Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Revelation is the last book in the Bible. This morning we're in Revelation 3, verses 7 through 13. As you do that, I'm so thankful that uh, God has placed us here together this morning. As we open God's Word, we do not just simply come here and Think about the best that man's wisdom has to offer, but rather we peer into the very Word of God as believers do all around the world this Lord's Day and have done all around the world throughout the ages Uh, with great thankfulness that God has spoken. I pray that the prayer of your heart today would be that um, you would receive gladly whatever God has for you in His Word I'll ask you to stand in reverence to the reading of Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, and then we will pray and ask for his mercy as we study his perfect and precious word together. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true One, who has the key of David who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know you have but little power, and yet you have kept My word and have not denied My name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Oh Lord, help us to see and to understand what it means to be a conqueror through faith in Christ. What it means to be an overcomer, a victor. What it means to live based on Your Word and in Your name. We pray it in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. There was a boy born in a backwood rural town. He was born to a poor family and they had very little in the ways of economic means and he had very little formal education. He ended up at a very young age becoming an assistant to someone who made shoes. And he ended up taking up that profession himself as a shoemaker. He was married and they had a child, two years old, the child died. He barely had enough money to feed his family, but he became a Christian And he had a fascination for God's Word. And he started a process of self-educating himself in the Bible, in theology, and even in biblical languages. But he was also always fascinated with the world. From a very young age, he collected maps from all around and would put them on the walls and One person said about him that he was someone who could feel the weight of the word world. He ended up being a faithful member of a church and believed he was called to ministry and submitted himself to the church to evaluate his call to ministry. And the church over a period of a couple of years watched him and listened to him and ultimately he preached a sermon where they were going to make a decision and they said no. We don't see it. So he just started serving the church again. And over a period of time, the church came back to him and said, we would like you to preach again. And he said, yes, we do see it. Not long after, he left as a missionary to India. And while he was there, his five-year-old son died of an illness, and his wife had mental health problems. But over 28 years, he translated the entire Bible into India's five major languages of the time, and he translated portions of the Bible into 209 different languages. He started a college and a seminary, and he served in India 41 years without a furlough and had about 700 converts who eventually turned into millions. His name? William Carey. Now if that name is not familiar to you, that's okay. I will let you know that he is also known as the father of the modern missions movement. This uneducated boy from a backwood country town who educated himself, who had very little, who accomplished more than he could have ever imagined because of his burden for the Word and the world. One day, toward the end of his life, somebody asked him what his secret was How did you accomplish so much? And his response has always stuck with me. He said, I can plod. I can persevere in any definite pursuit. To this, I owe everything. I can plod. It's a powerful descriptor of his life. Just one more step. One more step. You know, plotting is really undervalued. A lot of things in our context, and in his as well, are greatly overvalued. Intelligence is way overvalued. Giftedness is way overvalued. Natural abilities is way overvalued. Plenty of people have all of those things and do very little with them. But there's something all of us can do, and that is plod. The church is really a vast army of gospel plotters. Paul goes out of his way in Corinthians to to point out that God by design is not in the world calling out the best and the brightest. God is not in the world calling out people based on their natural abilities and giftedness and intelligence. No. Says he's picking the not wise and the not noble. In fact, he's picking people. It even goes on to say that the world looks at and says that person is the off-scouring of the world. That's a nobody from a nowhere place. Well, what's the secret? A secret to a bunch of people who aren't Accomplishing things because they are so inherently gifted and intelligent, the secret is a people who have been empowered to plod. In the book of Revelation, we're looking at this revelation of Jesus Christ. John is the one who records us, records it for us, because God came to him. It says, as he was worshiping on the Lord's Day, as he's on this rocky island called Patmos as a political exile, because he would not say, Caesar is Lord, because Jesus alone is Lord, and God gives him this message. And the message is how Jesus fulfills all of the promises in the Bible and how he's going to fulfill this in the end and he has specific messages to specific churches which is helpful to all churches in all places but John records these words of Jesus and particularly all churches are plotter churches but if one could be signified in this way it is certainly this one to the church in philadelphia Well, one of the things that he does is he he tells about how they need to cling to a part of the reality of who he is. Now, there's a vision of Jesus in chapter 1, and this one is unique because it doesn't directly quote out of that vision. The things that it says are in that vision, but it's not a direct quotation. What he says that they need to understand about him as the Lord of the church is this. He is the King of truth. The King of truth, verse 7. Look with me, beginning in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write. The angel of the church, either a guardian angel or the pastor of the church, the representative of the church, write these things. Well, there's a few things we can know about the church at Philadelphia, which helps us understand the way Jesus is coming to them and graciously meeting their needs. This is the youngest of the seven cities. In the context here, it is a newer city, and it was founded for the purpose of Hellenizing the area. In other words, spreading Greek culture, the Greek language, and the Greek worldview. That's the reason it was founded in the very beginning. Now, this is a small city, and the text implies that the church we're dealing here with is a small church. This is not a big church with a lot going on and a lot of money. This is a small church in a small town, and it doesn't have many resources. It's also situated on the edge of... An active volcanic area. Which meant that the people lived in a constant insecurity, a fearfulness about what would happen. Now, there was a good side to that, because since it was an active volcanic area, there was rich and fertile soil... But the good side was also matched by the bad side of living in fear and constant danger and tremors and strong and jolting aftershocks. And it was very common for people to flee the city evacuating for safety. And even as I say that, we need to be in fervent prayer for the folks living in Texas and on the coastal area who many have had to evacuate and flee their city in light of this hurricane. I've been checking with my friends there, and so far, praise God, everyone I know is safe. But these people were evacuating this area often because of this volcanic activity. And so they would be in their home and they would flee their home and they would return hoping everything was there. And this was a pattern of life and they lived with this constant sort of uneasiness about what was going on. Now, knowing this background is vital to understanding what Jesus reveals about Himself. Look at the second part of verse 7. The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David... Who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Well, clearly there at the end, it's speaking to the authority of Christ. He has the power to open what nobody else has the power to shut. He has the power to shut what nobody else has the power to open. But this is one place where what Jesus says about Himself is directly tied to language about God is the people understood it in the Old Testament. Jesus says He is the Holy One. He is the set-apart One. He is other. But He's also the true One. He is the One who is faithful. And the Word was specifically tied to keeping the covenant promise. The promise of the Gospel that He fulfilled. So, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Savior, is God. He's holy. Holy God and Jesus is Messiah, Holy God who fulfills the covenant promise. But then it says, "Who has the key of David?" Now to understand that, we've got to remember uh, Isaiah chapter twenty-two, verses twenty through twenty-two. If we go back there, that was a uh, there was a man named King Hilkiah, and there was a man named Elekhem. And Elikim was the steward of the riches of King Hilkiah. And it says there that he was given the key to open the door of the house of David. In other words, on behalf of Hilkiah, Elikim had the door to the riches. Who he allowed to go in and have them, and who he allowed to be shut out from that was his business. And house of David at this time was shorthand for the kingdom, ultimately pointing to the kingdom of God. So Elikim was the one who had the key to the riches of the king. Now when you apply that to Jesus, it's so clear what he's saying here. Jesus is the greater than Elikim. He's the steward who is the great king. He has the key. He opens the door to the riches of God by His death, burial, and resurrection. The way to the riches of God and the security found only in God is through the true Messiah, who is the holy God. Jesus is the one by His death, burial, and resurrection has opened the door to the living God. And He is the one who opens and no one will shut. Who shuts and no one will open. Meaning, He has the final authority to these issues. What a great and powerful word for a small, struggling church in a difficult place. You, you, you there in Philadelphia, you there by the volcanic activity, you who keep having to flee your homes, you who have people persecuting you for your faith, you who are excluded from the synagogue. Understand this. The one who's speaking to you has the keys to the house of David, the kingdom of God, and you have access through me, to riches that no one else has, that can never be taken away, because when I open the door, no one can shut it. And when I shut the door, no one can open it. This church is to reflect on His faithfulness. He is the one who is the King of truth. They are to live based on the truth of His Word and His promise, but they are also to reflect His faithfulness. And they're doing a fantastic job. In this church, there is no word of rebuke. There is no category, what's wrong in the church he goes immediately to what we see next, and that is what is right in the church. And what is right in the church is faithfulness to the true king's word. Look with me at verse 8. I know, by the way he says that every time, I know, and those, I know what's really going on. I know your works. The particular verb here is for I know and I will always know. I know your works. Behold or look. I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Now, do you think that's a good word for a small, struggling church living in the insecurity of the area they're living in with very few resources? You are not abandoned. You are not unable to accomplish much because I have opened a door. Who is it who opened the door? The one who opens a door and no one else has the ability to shut it. That church, he says, has an open door. That church can matter and it does matter. We're still talking about it today. But notice what he also says. For I know that you have but little power, meaning, Seemingly little power. You don't have a big bank account. You don't have a lot of numbers. And yet, you have kept My Word and have not denied My name. You embrace the name of the living God by faith Coming to faith in the Son, the Messiah, and you cling to and live based on His Word, your life will matter for the sake of the kingdom. You will accomplish things that may not be in the newspaper, but they will be things that matter for eternity. You in Christ have an open door. All you need for your life to matter is by faith to embrace the name of God and to order your life based on the Word of God. That's all that you need. Whether you're rich or poor, or whatever language or background you are from, that's what you need. The issue is faithfulness. Faithfulness to what the true King has spoken. This language about a door is almost always a door of opportunity. 1 Corinthians 16.9, Paul says, There was a wide open door for effective work. 2 Corinthians 2.12, he says there was a door open for me in the Lord. Colossians 4.3, he says pray for us that God may open a door for the Word. A door of opportunity for the work of the spread of the Gospel and the glory of God. You know what this means. This means that when you say, oh, I don't have much power. I can't do anything. My my life's not important. Leave that to the people who are gifted. Leave that to this. I'll just be here in the background. Who am I? And you try to convince yourself that that is humility. But in reality, it is pride. It is not humility to argue with God about the usefulness of your life. Church of Philadelphia, not many people, not much money, difficult area, boom! Door of opportunity. The issue is do they go through the door of opportunity, or do they use these other things as excuses? Do they live based on the story that they are telling themselves or do they live based on the Word of God? That's the issue, and that's the issue for you and me. It is easy for us to lay low, huddle up, protect ourselves, and brand it as humility. It's not. Humble people in Christ lead courageous lives, faithfulness, not glamorous lives plotting lives because they will not deny His name or His Word. Small, little power. Open door. Will you faithfully plod through the open door Jesus provides you in His name? Obeying what feels safe is never safe. Obeying what God tells us in His Word, even when it doesn't feel safe, is always safe. Safe in an ultimate sense. Because God has never said that we should not be persecuted or suffer. He has said He will never abandon us and He will use us. Look at verse 9. Behold, or look, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, Honestly, he can't say things any stronger than he says this, there is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. None. Those people that would tell you today that there is salvation for the Jewish people outside of Christ because they're Jewish are preachers of the synagogue of Satan. It's kind of like the sacrificial system. The Old Testament tells us about the sacrificial system, but if I were to say, hey, I'm in Leviticus today, so we're going to sacrifice a ram up here to obey the Scripture, I would be disobeying the Scripture, because the Scripture brought us from the sacrificial system to the one it pointed to, the final sacrifice of Christ. And for people who live on this side of the cross, to sacrifice an animal for the forgiveness of their sins is rebellion against the Word of God, not obedience to it. And the Jewish people who were entrusted with the word of God were entrusted a word that was leading to the Jew who fulfilled the covenant promises and his name is Jesus. So to be a true Jew in the sense of faithfulness to God demands faith in Jesus. There is salvation for no one outside of conscious faith in Jesus. And that ought to shape everything we do and all that we think. About everything. But he says, listen, there are those who put you out of their synagogues. Ultimately, they will come before you and bow. What does he mean there? What does Paul say in Philippians? Ultimately, every knee will bow and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. So that is acknowledging those who say, Jesus Christ is Lord, are right. Right. Don't look at what they have now, says. Don't look at the power that they have now. Understand the way my promise works. Look with me at verse 10. Because, or it could be translated, since you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. In other words, you will be protected from the ultimate judgment the judgment of those who live in rebellion to My name. I will keep you safe because you are My people. But notice what He honors. He honors their patient endurance. There's another way we could put that. The fact that by faith, you simply kept plodding along in My name. And that next step may have felt in your gut like you didn't want to take it, but you took it because you obey My Word and not your gut, because Jesus is Lord. And so there you are in your patient endurance, following the path that I set out for you, plotting in My name. His name and His Word bring true power. A power that the seeming power of riches and position and giftedness and intelligence can never ever provide. In verse 11, we see Christ's counsel to the church. Here's what he says, Hold fast to the true King and His word. I am coming soon. That's the keynote of the entire book of Revelation and ultimately the entire message of the Bible is about the way Christ consummates the kingdom of God. I am coming soon. On this side of the cross, we are those on whom the end of the ages has come. We live in the days in which Christ is coming soon. Notice what he tells them. Hold fast what you have. The the word is seize, grasp. So that, here's the purpose, no one may seize your crown. In other words, you may not be seen as a fraud and say you have a crown that you do not have. So, hold fast, seize what you have. What do they have? He's already said it. My name and my word. Hold fast to it. Cling to it. Do not let go of it. No matter how anybody tells you how we are more enlightened today, and we understand more than God says in His Word, don't believe it. Hold fast. Trust my words. Live based on them. But we are to hold fast knowing something in verses 12 and 13. And that's the promise to the church. Here's the promise to the church. Sovereign security. Now I titled this sermon, The Nike Church. Because the word that keeps coming up is conqueror, the Greek word, nike, or nike. All right? The the reason I call this church that, even though the promise is to all who obey, is because this church right now is obeying it best. You can sense the delight of Jesus with the message to this church. Now, the shoe company, Nike, started in a college classroom as a paper project and ultimately started taking some steps to really try to do it. The swoosh came before the name. The swoosh, Phil Knight, the owner of Nike, bought for $35. And he's like, I don't like it, but I can't figure out anything else or whatever. And then they were like, what's the name? What's the name? And and some guy calls up and says, you know, I was reading a book about... Greek and there was talk about God of victory and his name was Nike and he's like, "Uh oh, better than anything else we got. Nike, victory, triumph for athletes, marketing for athletes, that's where the name comes from. But it's a reflection of this word that is applied in the Bible exclusively to followers of Jesus. They are the conquerors, the victors, or it translates the word overcomers. Verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit, that is the Spirit of Christ, says to the churches. Do do you see what's going on here? The people are insecure. They don't have much money. They don't have many people. They have to flee from this volcano. They have to leave their home all the time. And he says to them, okay, here's where this is headed. This is a place I'm delivering you to as a conqueror. And you shall never shall he go out of it. Verse 12. You won't be fleeing anywhere. This is a place of eternal safety and security. You never have to pack your stuff up and evacuate. That's where this is headed. There will be no more fleeing because there will be no more fleeing because the things that cause people to flee in a fallen world will be done away with. And by the way, you've been kicked out of the synagogue and people are attacking you saying you're unfaithful to the true and living God. Well, there is a pillar in the temple, the kingdom that I'm going to write your name on. In Philadelphia, the, the leading citizens who accomplished the most for the city would have their names etched on pillars as a sign of honor. And here Jesus Christ says, for the people who are conquerors in Him, His followers, the faithful, who will be redeemed to a place where they will never have to go out from, will have their name on a pillar. Their name will be in the kingdom written there by the grace of God. And it will be a new city, not the fallen city you now reside in. And you will have a new name, and that name will be the name of God given to you because His authority will cover you forever, and you'll never have to flee. He answers all of their fears with absolute sovereign security. The only issue is do they believe the way they sum up the world apart from the words of God? Or will they believe the words of God and apply their lives to them? Excommunicated from the synagogue? A pillar in the kingdom of heaven. Disowned by family and community? Received by God and never cast away. So what's, what was the secret? Was it a large city? No. No. Was it a large church? No. Was the secret lots of money? No. Was the secret great resources? No. Was the secret great intellect? No. Was the secret great giftedness? No. Was Was the secret a culture where everybody was safe? No. The secret was, in Christ, will they plod through the open door? Conquerors who trust God by faith do. How are you responding to the doors that Christ is opening for you? There are ways for you to make a difference that you have not made because though you have been prompted about doing things that you know are faithful to the Word of God, the check in your gut and the fearfulness about stepping forward has paralyzed you. And so the door of opportunity is open and cannot be shut by anyone. You will not walk through it. Heard a story this week about a bunch of elderly ladies who started going to the local strip club. Building relationships with the worker, girls, and having an impact, leading them to faith in Christ, and helping them get out of that lifestyle. And you wonder why a bunch of little old ladies took up that ministry. Well, because they read a study where they found out that if women their age went to help them, they would feel judged and wouldn't receive the help. If women who are middle-aged, older than them, helped them, they wouldn't receive the help because they felt like it was their mother. But when little old ladies will go wait outside the strip club because they love Jesus, strippers started coming to faith in Christ. But guess what? The little old ladies had to hear that idea And get up and drive to the strip club. And you know what? Their gut probably said, Who am I to do this? I might get hurt. This is dangerous. Uh, Strip clubs aren't exactly in the best places in town. But they did it anyway. What is it that you can point to that's like that? That just because the gospel is true, you did it. Maybe your discontentment is not because of your circumstances, but your unwillingness to walk through the door of opportunity in the midst of your circumstances. Let's pray.